Cast Image Life. For all the joy and adventure one can associate with childhood and child rearing, there is a flare of foreboding, even malice, that I associate with children, being close to the beginning of life. My caution is no doubt linked to the vein of narratives that trade in demonic possession and passage, but this apprehension could also be stoked by their proximity to non-life, their newness to the world of the living. It could also be the fact that many instances of childbirth can spell catastrophe for the person giving birth and to the person being birthed. Proximities like this can be sticky. The places where life and non-life leak into each other reveal how enmeshed they are, contrary to the sovereignty I have been taught to expect. A pregnancy is a series of events, but it is hard to downplay labor and birth as points of heightened significance. My sister almost died when giving birth to her first child. She had a form of preeclampsia, which put her and her child in grave danger. Six weeks before her due date, the family was slightly more scattered than usual, her husband away for work, my father and stepmother away for vacation, and myself away for school. As is usually the case, she was the calmest of all of us, and I cried in a cafe until she phoned me from the hospital and told me the plan. Birth is a fulcrum at which we might place the beginning of life, and of this particular moment, I wonder if the stage before life, if anything at all, is the same space as the state after life. I suppose this would have to do with how one conceptualizes and visualizes life, as a corridor between rooms, a pool into which we dip very briefly, a fire which burns and goes out, possibly without regard for, or a conception of its fuel, or the ashes or it leaves behind. A pool into which we dip very briefly, a fire which burns and goes out, possibly without regard for a conception of its fuel or the ashes it leaves behind. Beside my bed, amongst a pile of other postcards and ephemera, there is a picture my partner brought back for me from a flea market in Lisbon. The photo is black and white. It depicts a child of ambiguous gender walking down the street on a leather leash. A hand emerging from a blob of black fabric holds the end of the leash, which is adorned with sleigh bells. It is an image of discipline that grows more shocking and strange with time. On the back of the image, the number 49 is inscribed. If this is the date of the image, the child would now be in their mid to late 70s. Cameras can act as tools of capture and endurance, and when I look at the picture of this child being walked, I wonder what endures through this image. If I were to show this picture to the now elderly child, would they see themselves, a symbol for childhood itself, a symbol of discipline, the subject of a portrait? I want to ask if they believe anything about themselves hangs in this picture, like a mosquito trapped in amber. As her children have grown older, my sister and her husband have enforced a strict policy about photographs and social media. Family members are allowed to take pictures of the children and share them with other family members, but not allowed to share them on social media. When I was first informed about this boundary, I thought about Michael Jackson's children wearing veils and draped in blankets. To me, these images made them appear to be in a Victorian state of mourning, or dressed up as ghosts, especially when they were dangled from French hotel balconies. More recently, I have thought about the babies in the photographs of Anne Gettys and how their images have garnered hundreds of millions of dollars long before the emergence of Instagram or Facebook. Many of these images play on the vulnerability of nude or semi-nude infants in their saccharine compositions, which have nothing to do with the child they portray, and so much more to do with the figure of the child in cultural consciousness. 
some kind of precious nugget, as consumable as a cut flower or a green pea. An example that could shed more truth on the market for images of children might be found in the cover of Nirvana's Nevermind, in which an infant floats in a body of water, seemingly drawn to a dollar bill impaled on a fish hook. Thirty years after the explosion of the album and the unfathomable proliferation of the image, the child depicted unsuccessfully sued the record company, and the band, which continues to use this image of a naked child to generate millions of dollars. Many articles I have read about the case implicitly question the motivations of the man, now in his early 30s, citing past, more positive statements on the photograph and the recreations he has participated in. This stance seems to be echoed by some entertainment lawyers who have commented on the case. The structure of these articles implies that the authors might be unaware of the ways that one's mind, that one's perception of their image, or more to the point, the way they have been monetized, might change over the course of one's life. Even if, as the article suggests, this is some cynical cash grab on the part of the plaintiff, I can imagine almost everything to do with Nirvana after, possibly before, Kurt Cobain's death was a similarly cynical transaction, and it is hard for me to blame the kid for trying to get a cut. Just after my undergraduate degree, I lived briefly with a Rhodes Scholar who was about to embark on her master's degree at Oxford. One afternoon, I laughed at a tweet from a local troll account that read something like, Is it possible for white student aid workers to travel to Africa without photographing themselves with an anonymous group of black children? I read the tweet out to the kitchen, and the scholar furrowed her brow, replying with, Is it possible that this guy is a fucking asshole? I was a little surprised by the response, but moved on with my day. Later, I asked another housemate about the exchange, and she said, Well, she did do an aid trip last year. And I wondered if there was, somewhere deep in the feed, an image of this young woman posing with a group of local children, taken as a souvenir of her vacation and a record of her goodness. In the late aughts, this type of youth volunteerism or poverty tourism was ubiquitous, whether through Christian organizations or secular programs. Companies like Youth International send college-age students from Western nations, primarily to the Global South, for month-long excursions which are described as the most exciting, fulfilling, and educational experience of a participant's life. These trips cost roughly $5,000 US plus airfare, and are advertised as rustic immersions into a local culture, funneling participants directly into the homes of local people, described by Youth International as host families. The site contains no information on how these host families are recruited or compensated for bringing college-age Westerners into their homes. The Youth International website and Instagram account are littered with images of young, mostly white people giving piggyback rides to children in Ecuador, drawing with children in Nepal, laughing with children, carrying logs with children, and on and on and on. The branding of this organization is not subtle. It relies on a sharp visual distinction between who is a participant and who is a local, a distinction that is almost uniformly drawn along racial lines. The most uncharitable interpretation of this company would understand it as a travel agency offering photo opportunities for young Westerners with black and brown children, with the added bonus of offsetting their white guilt or class guilt with light volunteer activities. For many years, on Tinder and similar dating sites, it was common to see profile pictures of men holding babies. In my most cynical moments, I imagined the article that informed men that this would attract young women on some primal level. Perhaps it was a trend that spiraled out from some centralized idiocy or maybe it was a more generalized expression of heteronormative misogyny, or maybe even a genuine expression of love for children. In any case, I often recoil when children are made into images, 
even more so when they see a camera, most often a phone, and make themselves into images, posing reflexively. The boundaries my sister sets on behalf of her children, as she has described them to me, are about consent. She is wary of their digital life beginning before they are able to make informed choices about where their image circulates. Far from being a judgment about the use of images, her rule makes me think about my wholesale dumping of images into corporate databases, and if I ever gave myself time to think about its implications. As someone whose adolescence was twinned with that of the internet and social media, I often feel like the proverbial frog in a pot of water as the temperature was raised very slowly until it was boiled alive. For now, her children dwell in a state of pre-exposure to the ocean of images. As an act of parental stewardship, she and her husband have made a cove for them, a second space of gestation, before they elect themselves and their images into a strange and vast image life. Instagram insists on showing me videos of elaborate gender reveal parties. Balloons are popped, freeing a shower of blue confetti. A cake is cut and a wave of pink candy tumbles onto the garden terrace. As the attendees jump up and down cheering, I wonder what it is they are applauding. What imagined future unfolds with that explosion of crepe paper? I am not against the celebration of a new life. I love babies, and I have an immense amount of respect for the job of child rearing. But these gratuitous celebrations of the gender binary always filled me with rage. If the cheering family knew that this child would be ridiculed or hated for their inability to perform an acceptable version of the pink or blue confetti life, would they jump as high? What if, when it is time to read the signs, yellow smoke explodes from the tip of a Roman candle? The first photo of me in existence was taken in the hospital. I look dazed, slightly emotionless. My eyes are dark and my face is encircled by a halo of bright white peach fuzz. I am lying on my back. My head is resting on a light blue satin blanket. The emulsion is cracked at the edges. I am now what is left of that bundle of potential. I borrowed the image from my mother and promised to keep it safe. It is precious and singular. No negative exists. I know that very quickly and very suddenly, this image could be erased from existence. The first record of my own fraught gender reveal. If I could speak to God, I would ask them to ensure that in the future, when any photo is taken of a baby, any gendered signifiers would materialize in the image as leopard print.